Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a long-time user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Hello and welcome to Open Apple. This is episode 60 for June 2016. I am your co-host, the first, Quinn Dunkey, and with me as always is co-host, the second, Mike McGinnis. How you doing, Mike? I'm sweltering. Quinn, it's 90 degrees here. 90 degrees? Yeah. Wow, it's, it's only June. <laughs> I know. It's not supposed to hit us until like late July or something like that. I don't know. Right about the time when everybody's going to Kansas Fest. Are you looking forward to that? Oh, yes, definitely. I'm getting ready uh, as we speak. In fact, behind me, I have a, a stack of chips and um, a stack of labels and a ROM burner, and I'm going to town because, uh, as, as you may have heard, if you're on the uh, KFest email list, which you should be if you listen to this show, uh, I'm going to be uh, selling my Apple II C Plus upgrade ROM uh, at Kansas Fest. So for a special low, low Kansas Fest price, because I don't have to do shipping or anything like that. So for 10 bucks, you too can own an Apple II C Plus that does not have a weird beep. It has a regular Apple II sounding beep, <laughs> and it uh, defaults to one megahertz instead of four. And so you can still switch to four if you want to for your all your Apple works and you know productivity needs. But uh, most importantly, when you boot it up to play games, as most of us do, uh, it will be nicely set to one megahertz, just like the good Lord intended. <laughs> yeah, there's something just wrong about Load Runner at four megahertz. It's just it's too hard for me. <laughs> there, really, there really is. Yes. Yeah. Was was one one megahertz was good enough for Was, and it's uh, it's good enough for me too. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, speaking of Kansas Fest, uh, we have uh, with us. Um, well, we don't normally have a lot of repeat guests on the show because most of them, you know, avoid us after their after their appearance is over. But uh, I think we've had Sean on now more than I think almost any other guest, maybe more. Uh, but what is in, in what is quickly becoming an annual tradition, we have with us Sean Fahey of the uh, Kansas Fest uh, organizing committee here to, to to talk to us a little bit, and he'll probably hang out and do some news with us. Uh, so, what do you say we get on with it, Quinn? Yeah, sounds good. Great. Hi, I'm Bill Budge, and you're listening to the Open Apple Podcast. All right, sitting down with us today is Sean Fahey, an Apple II community regular, local celebrity, and of course, uh, integral to the uh, Kansas Fest uh, annual tradition. Uh, welcome to the show, Sean. How are you doing? Hey, everybody. Hey, Sean. So uh, are you all geared up for K-Fest? Yeah, we're really looking forward to it. We're uh, putting on the final, the final finishing touches of uh, getting the conference ready. We've got uh, about 70 people signed up for this year so wow. far, same as last year. So it's going to be a big turnout. And uh, we're, we're trying to put together a few surprises to uh, shake things up a little bit. Awesome. So the turnout's been uh, on the rise uh, the past few years. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so the last two years have been... Uh, significantly higher and uh we we seem to be kind of uh the past two years we're kind of at the 70 attendee mark but uh, before that it was 65 68 and we've trended up since then uh i mean before that we were at 45 50 i mean it just keeps getting a little bigger and bigger every year that's fantastic without uh, spoiling any of those surprises that you talked about uh what sort of things can newcomers look forward to if they've never been to kansas fest before well, there'll be the garage giveaway again this year, and it'll probably be a little bit bigger than normal because uh, I got to make room in the garage. It's uh, it's <laughs> overflowing, so 
Uh, we're going to be bringing a, a lot more stuff, I think, than we normally do. Well, m- maybe 20% more if I, if we can squeeze it into the big green truck. And uh, the cookout this year, uh, it's actually going to be catered. And we're going to have all of our usual great sessions that we have. Um, we've got a lot of great prizes this year from our from our vendor community. Um, which if you don't mind at some point in time into their show, I'd like to give a shout out to. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. But first, how would one go about winning one of those prizes? Well, we have different uh, contests. As you know, we have the Hackfest prize, which is probably the, probably the, the biggest one. Uh, we have door design or uh, door decorating contests, uh, Bite the Bag, which is uh, always fun to watch. Bite the Bag? What uh, is that? Well, that's where people, uh, they put a paper sack on the floor. And with only one part of your body uh, touching the floor, you reach down and bite it with your teeth. And then as the round keeps getting more, as more people bite the bag, they tear off more of the bag. It gets lower and lower to the ground. And people have to do some amazing gymnastics usually to, to get it. I mean, literally, it becomes a little sliver of paper on the floor that people have to grab with their teeth. <laughs> I'm almost afraid to ask where the inspiration for that game came from. I don't know. It's just been a Kansas Fest tradition for a long time, but there's a lot of people doing headfirst gainers into the floor and, <laughs> and flopping, and it's fun to watch. So Awesome. Yeah, and I can attest, uh, having played that uh, my first K-Fest a couple of years ago, that uh, it is much, much harder than it sounds to get your face that close to the ground with only one part of your body touching the ground. <laughs> much harder than it sounds. But uh, there'll be some other contests and uh, some wackiness. And uh, like I said, we've got a lot of prizes to give away this year. So you, know, you don't have to be the winner to win a prize, probably. We have second and third place prizes for a lot of our contests. And... Uh, Really, uh, these prizes are that we got this year are really amazing. Great. Well, and I know that uh, one of the high points of Kansas Fest, especially in recent years, has been the the keynote. And of course, uh, as announced on your your webpage, um, this year's this year's speaker is going to be a Mike Harvey, publisher of Nibble Magazine. And I know that he's been something of an elusive target for you guys in the past. Do you know how that came about this year? Well, uh, Mike gave a a uh, interview to Juice GS a while back, uh, I think almost six years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's posted a lot of information about himself online. I, I think he felt that he didn't, there was nothing really new to contribute, but I assured him that uh, we would love to meet him in person, uh, shake his hand, get autographs, love to hear his stories in person as far as uh, his anecdotes in the publishing industry and Apple in general. And, uh, he said it was a great idea, and he's going to come on out. Yeah, looking forward to that for sure. So Kansas Fest officially starts on well, on what date? Tuesday the uh, it's the twentieth, isn't it? I don't have the calendar in front of me. It's the nineteenth. <laughs> yeah, I, the the nineteenth is the uh, Tuesday. The nineteenth is the early arrival day. It, nothing really official happens on that day. It was it was an extra day that was tacked on years ago because people wanted to arrive early. They wanted to have an extra day to, to socialize and, and hang out with their friends. Uh, so nothing really, like I said, nothing really official happens on the 19th. But uh, 20th is the, the actual check-in day. That's when we have our 
uh, our initial activities. We go out to eat that night, do crazy things. Okay. Um, now I, I'm looking at the web page here, and it said that, uh, of course, early bird registration has already ended by the you know by the time we're recording this. Uh, but does that mean people can still register, right? Yeah, yeah. There, the the registration rate goes up. I think I believe fifty five dollars, but uh, you can still uh, still register up until. Um, I'd have to double check the website for for the detail, but and you can still order a t shirt if you want uh, up until I believe July or June twenty second, and then uh, that gets locked in. Okay, and that's that's for full room and board through Sunday the twenty fourth, and that covers meals and sessions and everything, right? You're right. Okay, okay, that's that's actually a really good price. One of the one of the best things about KFest, I think, is is the price. Uh, it's hard to, I mean, you can't beat that for any kind of conference to have all of your lodging and meals and everything covered for for that kind of price for that amount of time. It's pretty amazing. It's probably the cheapest vacation I take every year for sure. <laughs> yep. Well, we try to keep it reasonable for everybody, and we're also looking for other ways that we can provide value to attendees. Okay. Now, speaking of providing value, you had mentioned the, the prizes earlier, and uh, what what who provides them? And, and are we talking just like a, a network card, or you're giving away a, a fully stuffed uh, Apple II GS? Where on the scale does that do your prizes fit? Well, uh, there's a spectrum. Uh, mostly, it's uh, peripherals and add-ons for your, for Apple IIs. Uh, but there's also some books and uh, other Chotsky that we're going to be giving away, uh, thanks to our generous vendors. Okay. Did you want to mention any of them? Yeah, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd like to thank Mike Whalen, uh, Sierra Saunter, uh, Ken Gagney, Charles Magan, Mark Pilgrim, Rich Dreher, Steve Weirich, Chris Torrance, Bill Martins and Brian Weiser, Glenn Jones, uh, Plamen with A2 Heaven, uh, Mike Harvey, Andrew and Ivan Hogan, Gabriella Gorla, and uh, Alex Cross. They've all gen- generously donate, uh, donated prizes to Kansas Fest this year. Great. And, of course, to register for all this, you can go to kansasfest.org and sign up now. Um, there is one question, uh, one thing that, that you mentioned uh, at the very beginning that I, I think maybe uh, deserves a little bit more investigation, and that's uh, you, the Sean's Garage Giveaway. What is that, and how did you come up with it? Well, uh, when I got back into the Apple II community, uh, I started collecting hardware for myself, uh, adding to my collection. And then uh, before too long, though, I started running into people who wanted to get rid of more stuff than I I possibly needed. And uh, so I started collecting it and dispensing it to uh, other Apple II users. Uh, There were a couple of... Uh, Sunday school and kindergarten programs that still used Apple IIs that depended on me for equipment. Uh, so I, I would keep a lot of this stuff in stock. And then, uh, but it got to the point where I had, you know, at any given time, I'd have 50 or 60 Apple IIs and maybe as many Apple II GSs in the garage at a time. And uh, it was just getting too much. And there was no way I was going to use them all. And my wife was uh, not very pleased with the situation. <laughs> so, uh, I just started taking them to, I started having the people from Kansas Fest come down to my garage and whatever I got for free, I would give away for free. And now it's gotten to the point where, uh, uh, people contact me, you know, if they're downsizing or, or getting rid of their collection for some reason, 
or unfortunately someone's passed away, uh, you know, they, they send me their things or I go pick them up in, in some circumstances and I bring them to Kansas Fest and uh, redistribute everything to the community. Free of charge? I take donations because uh, it does cost money to store things in the storage shed. Uh, you know, I, I don't put anything in the garage anymore except my stuff, but I, I rent a storage shed. Plus there's you know, gas and hotels if we travel somewhere to go pick stuff up. But it, you know, if it's free, it's if you want to give me a donation, that's great. But otherwise, it's you take it; it's yours. Wow, that's a really good deal, especially yeah. since you can. There's a lot of that stuff that, um, you know, when you when you see, you, and you can go on on Flickr. I think Jason Scott at uh, his his Flickr username is Text Files. He took some really great pictures of it last year. You can see some of the the equipment that's there for the taking, and it's it's not cheap junky stuff. This is you know really. Great stuff if you want to uh, start a collection or if you're looking to build out what you have. Well, uh, people like Michael Mann, uh, when he sent me his collection, uh, I mean, it literally took up the nearly half of a moving van. Wow. <laughs> and it's his collection has been giving now for going on three years. We have not finished getting rid of everything he sent us. <laughs> wow, so that's amazing. Kind of we kind of mix it in with the other things that we get from other people. Uh, earlier this, uh, this, uh, spring, we went down to Texas to visit Hugh hood and he, uh, he sent a bunch of stuff back us back up with us. And, uh, we've been to Florida. Uh, Jamie Stevens was nice enough to give us a ton of old vintage Macintosh stuff. So that's something else that will be there this year is not just Apple too. There's going to be, there's going to be a lot of old Mac, stuff as well wow that's that's really great and who knows maybe they'll even be an atari there boo atari <laughs> you never know <laughs> yeah last year there was a coco three on the table that's a pretty desirable item anyway it's gonna be a lot of cool stuff and uh it the the, the really nice thing is that it's not just software it's not just books not just magazines it's it's everything that these Eurobase collected over the years, and, uh, and I, th- I don't think you, I don't think you can go through the garage giveaway and not find something you want. That's for sure. Yeah, and I think what's really great about it is that it's keeping the stuff in the community. You know, it's it's keeping the stuff in the hands of people that really appreciate it and people that that are gonna you know love it and <laughs> take good care of it and do cool stuff with it. So uh, instead of just shoveling it onto eBay or, or even worse into a landfill, I think it's, uh, it's, it's kind of a great community service, I think. Well, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah definitely no, no naughty showing up and shoveling the stuff right onto eBay. <laughs> exactly. That's frowned upon. Yes. <laughs> so uh, for the more uh, sort of experienced KFS goers, uh, my understanding is that also this year there's a bit of a focus on fewer sessions and more free time. Is that true? Yeah. Last year, uh, you know, we kind of went for broken and we, I think we overscheduled and we had some feedback that the, that the pace was just a little too relentless as far as the sessions went. And, uh, so we've kind of dialed it back to, to, uh, something a little more reasonable. And we're also going to try to have more hands-on time with uh, with various uh, sessions, so that people who have have repair needs, you know, they can have someone there to help them with that. 
Well, in fact, don't you even have like, um, isn't there like a soldering um, a session this year? Yeah, I, I believe Ultimate Micro is going to participate in that. And of course, uh, James Littlejohn and, and Charles Mangan and, and a bunch of others, uh, they usually tend to jump in there and help with that as well. I always look forward to, as much as I love the informational sessions, the, the hands-on ones um, are always my favorites because not only do I, I, I get to work on equipment, but I get to work on around people who are, are, are more knowledgeable and experienced than I am in case I have questions. Or um, And it's a great chance if you have that Apple II that has a fried motherboard or something and, and you're just you know afraid of the, the, the soldering iron, uh, this is a great place to bring it and get it fixed. That and the the repairs you do yourself are very satisfying. Absolutely. Yeah, and every year there's uh, always someone's power supply that lets the magic smoke out. So it's nice to know that there's people there that can (laughs) fix it on the spot for you. True enough. Uh, I think that's all the questions I've got. Uh, Shall we uh, move on into the news? Sure. Sean, you want to hang out and do some news with us? Yeah, I got one question for Quinn, though. Mm, Yeah, fire away. Is the uh, setting... uh, to run to run the two C plus at one megahertz is that the Carrington setting? <laughs> well, it would be, except that he doesn't have a show by that name anymore. So uh, now it's uh, now it's just the normal setting. Shots fired. <laughs> <laughs> he claims he has more episodes of that show in the can, just waiting to be aired. And yet, it's been multiple years. So I I'm not holding out hope that Mr. Carrington will uh, be back on the air with an Apple II. But hopefully all of all of this teasing will uh, goad him into action, because it was a very good show. It may be old, but there's still news. Apple II News. Okay, well, uh, as usual, it's time for Apple II News. Yeah, we got a bit of a theme this month, uh, kind of a, a clone theme, if you like. Uh, we'll we'll kick that off with uh, a it looks like a Staff C1 Apple II clone on oldcomputer.com. Mike, this looks like you're fine. What's going on here? It is, and where did that go? It's not showing up on my list anymore. Um, oh, that's because I'm looking in the wrong place. <sighs> it's the heat that's killing my IQ points, I swear. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, over on uh, Old Computer with uh, no E. Uh, dot com there's um there's an article on the uh, staff c1 apple II clone this is not one that i had seen before it sort of looks like it's in a um maybe a franklin 2100 box ish sort of but mm-hmm. beige have you ever seen anything like this quinn or sean no i sure haven't uh, there seems to be different kinds of clones there's ones that look exactly like apple II pluses but with no badging and then there's ones that look like uh, a lower budget version, like they couldn't afford as fancy a case, so they put it in something a little bit cheaper. Um, and this one is somewhere in the middle, I guess. I don't think I've heard of it. Hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, this one, they, they say it uh, looks like it's an Apple II Plus clone that boots up. But when they power it on, it says, it says Staff C1 instead of the normal Apple II ROM uh, message at the top of the screen. Um, interesting. Yeah, this this is a very interesting one. The Apple II Plus is just so imminently clonable uh, that it's not surprising that there are gazillions of them. I mean, it really was just off-the-shelf parts and a couple of EEPROMs that are easily dumped uh, and flashed. So, uh, yeah, not shocking. And, of course, at the time, the company was fairly small and didn't have the uh, army of lawyers that they do now. So uh, it's hard to put a stop to this sort of thing. 
And this article itself is actually really great because they've got a, a series. They tear, they tore the thing down, pull it apart, and there's a number of really um, detailed high-resolution photos um, so you can see what's really going on inside there. Yeah, this was the first time I'd seen this blog, actually, and it looks like a really nice one. Uh, he takes really great photos, and he has kind of a unique uh, editing style with the photos. He kind of puts them all on a on a white background, and uh, it's, it's really nice. Uh, this is a good read, this one. Absolutely. What's next? Well, uh, if you don't want to play with uh, real hardware in clone form, you can play with it in yet another format on your modern machine. Uh, looks like someone's got uh, a JavaScript Apple II emulator, kind of like JSMS, but this one is a Chrome extension. So uh, you can run your Apple II uh, alongside anything else in your browser anytime you want. Uh, so yet another way to uh, emulate your Apple II. Uh, have you tried this one out yet, Mike? Yeah, I've been playing with it a little bit. Uh, it's uh, well-written. And uh, like you said, this, these things just keep getting smaller and tighter and more portable. It's it's gone from um, you don't even have to to go over to archive anymore to to do this. I wonder if this uh, if this is similar to that uh, or if that's it. I know that Jason did a lot of the work on that uh, project in JavaScript as well, um, mm-hmm. but it's fairly functional. You've got the, the options. You can pause it during operation. Look at the the code running in the background. It's got a an automatic uh, disk image loader, uh, so you don't have to be typing in command prompt thingies. And uh, this one is available in the Chrome store, Chrome extension store. It's Apple II JS by Wagner. I assume that's how you pronounce it. Uh, Alvaringa. Hmm. Interesting. Now, is this one, is this an Apple II Plus emulator, 2E? What are we looking at here? Uh, it doesn't say. It just says Apple II JS, and I haven't found any option to to switch between models of Apple II, but I haven't I haven't actually looked at that part of it too much. I've just been having too much fun uh, loading up uh, disk images <laughs> in my, my browser going, cool, and then loading another one and going, cool. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think that's what a lot of us do with these emulators. Right. Uh, well, that's pretty interesting. Uh, yeah, I guess it always amazes me when someone does this sort of thing. But I guess, it, I mean, it, it, in hindsight, I guess it shouldn't be amazing since, you know, one megahertz is like a rounding error in today's clock speeds. But uh, it is sort of remarkable that uh, what was an impressive piece of machinery that was an entire computer, you know, not so long ago is now just something you can run uh, as an accessory in, in a browser. Uh, pretty rem- Pretty remarkable, I think. Indeed. All right. Well, so we have uh, uh, probably this is my next this next item is my favorite one on the show, I think. And uh, I'm actually really bummed that I missed this missed out on this. Uh, this is uh, this is the Load Runner board game. Now, uh, I heard about this uh, originally on a, a different podcast. Um, boo, boo. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want to say it was the uh, RCR, I think. Yes. Yeah, I think the, the RCR uh, gang dug this one up. And it, uh, it's pretty amazing, this thing. Uh, it was apparently, uh, it was only released in Japan, which is why, uh, I bet none of our audience members have heard of the Load Runner board game. But there was one, and it was only released in Japan. It's incredibly rare, and a very, very nice copy of it came up on eBay recently, and it had a buy it now of $130. Um, and I was fully prepared, honestly, to pull the trigger on it at that price. And uh, I was playing. I, I stalled a little bit. I procrastinated a little bit. And I went back and looked at it the other day, and it was already gone. Oh. Um, and, yeah, I was bummed because 
I thought to, to play this at K-Fest would have been amazing. So I don't know who bought it, but if it's someone in our audience, I hope you're coming to K-Fest with this thing. Um, it's in terrific condition. All the parts are there, and it's probably not not especially fun because these video game-themed board games were never especially <laughs> good. But um, uh, yeah, it, just, it would be just awesome to play a Loadrunner board game at K-Fest. Um, so I hope someone out there bought it and will bring it. But uh, uh, if not, uh, enjoy it because that is really something special, I think. Sean, have you seen that before? No, I'd never seen it before. It was new to me. Okay. Yeah, that is that is a neat, neat thing. Uh, all right. Well, from the old to the new, once again, um, some of you may uh, be familiar with Kerbal Space Program, which is a really, really excellent educational game uh, on modern machines. And uh, it's, uh, it's I think it's, I don't know, shareware or something. Are you familiar with, uh, with KSP, Mike? Uh, vaguely, yeah. Okay, so it's it's free to download and play, I think, but maybe it's donation-based or something, I forget. But it's sort of kind of like an educational kind of thing. Uh, but it's really fun. Uh, you control the uh, this sort of race of, uh, of little green men that's trying to get into space, and you have to kind of manage their economy and design their spaceships and so on to help them out. Uh, great fun. Uh, someone decided uh, that wasn't cool enough, and they ported a version of it to the Apple II. And at first glance, this seems like a, a fun gimmick, like uh, someone makes a title screen for a theoretical, you know, retro port of a modern game. We've seen that kind of thing. This is something else. This appears to be actually be a full game, uh, complete with a uh, fake crack screen, which I found hilarious. Um, and uh, the I, the video that I'm, we're going to link to is is uh, from Hackaday, and I assume it's the author uh, narrating this video. But um, the shtick is that he is tired of the bugs in the real KSP, and so he sets his time machine to go forward in time to when they've patched all those bugs, and sets it to the past by mistake and goes back in time and ends up playing KSP on his Apple II. And so then he sort of narrates it in that sort of uh, uh, style. And uh, I assume he's the author of it, but uh, he kind of walks through a bunch of the features of it, plays plays through a few uh, missions. And uh, it's really quite well done, I have to say. Uh, it's got nice transitions, some nice graphics, uh, looks pretty full-featured and playable. So it's a surprisingly complete game, uh, which kind of came out of nowhere. Usually when someone's working on a game like this, we kind of hear about it for a while before it comes out. So not so in this case. Uh, did you uh, happen to try this out, Mike? I've downloaded it. Um, I haven't had a chance to load it up into my, my JavaScript uh, Chrome extension yet, but I'm sure I will. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. How about you, Sean? Have you tried this one? No, I haven't had time yet. All right. Uh, well, it looks like, a, looks like a fun little toy to play with, and it makes me want to go play the real one even more. <laughs> But meaning to get back to that. Uh, all right. Uh, so last month on the show, we talked about uh, Steve Chamberlain uh, over at Big Mess of Wires and the DB19 saga. And uh, we talked about how he had, uh, you know, he's the maker, of course, of the Floppy Emu, which is an awesome uh, solid state drive emulator for old Macs and also Apple IIs and possibly more things in the future. And uh, he was struggling to keep producing his device because the DB19 connector has been long out of production. Nobody uses it anymore and nobody makes it anymore. And uh, so uh, he decided to finally uh, bite the bullet and just go ahead and have them made. So he went and arranged a group buy with some other retro computing fans uh, from uh, like the Atari group. I believe the Atari ST used these and the Next, I believe, used some of these. Uh, so there were some other machines out there that did use DB19s in a couple of places. So he rounded up all of those people that he could and got everyone together for a group buy. 
And he, there's a great blog post on his blog that we'll link to telling the story of, how, of this. Uh, he managed to find some factory in Hong Kong that would make these things for him and had to wire an obscene amount of money to them. His, he had to convince his bank to even let him do that because the whole thing seemed really sketchy. Uh, it's a great story. Uh, and he ends up uh, finally with 10,000 of these things on his doorstep, which was the smallest order he could get. <laughs> so, yeah, he has the probably the world's supply at this point of DB19 connectors, uh, 10,000 of them. Some of them, I'm sure, are going to other vendors or to people from the group buy, but no doubt most of them have stayed with him. So if you want to buy a DB19, I'm sure uh, he would be thrilled to sell you one. Uh, but uh, it's pretty cool to see uh, these brand new connectors living again. Uh, and uh, yeah, before uh, commenting, uh, I would recommend reading his article because he answers all of the common questions that everybody has about this issue. Uh, number one being, oh, can't you 3D print them or something like that? And no, you can't. Uh, 3D printers are nowhere near that good. Uh, can't you cut down, you know, DB25s? Well, yes, you can, but they look like crap and you can't, you know, make a commercial product like that. Uh, and oh, by the way, here's five sites I found that sell them. Well, no, they don't actually. Uh, it just looks like they do. Uh, electronics stockists uh, list things they don't actually have all the time um, both because either they're forwarding orders to someone else who don't, also doesn't have them or you know they just put the thing up there in case someone makes a big order and then maybe they'll try to find them you know so it's it's just kind of the sketchy way that online electronic components are sold uh, so yeah you if you google this it'll look like you can buy them lots of places but you can't uh, they don't actually have them uh, great read I recommend it and uh, nice to know there's some db19s uh, in the world again more than you'll ever need. <laughs> yeah. I do wonder if uh, he hooked up with Nishida Radio for this, because Nishida Radio has been kind of making his own connectors. Um, I think he's 3D printing one piece of them, like the backing, and then setting the pins into it, and then like soldering it to a PCB. He's kind of been, you know, if you order one of his drive uh, adapters, you get something kind of like that. So I don't know if uh, maybe he'll be able to access these as well, or, or how that's going, but I think... Uh, I think Plamen in uh, Bulgaria is also involved in this, perhaps. So, uh, yep, more connectors in the world for our Apple IIs. Always a good thing. That's dedication. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. Yeah, uh, I think I think he on his blog he did the math on how many of his floppy emus he would have to to sell to <laughs> to pay for this, and it's not likely he's going to get that money back. But uh, it was quite an adventure for for all involved. He'll be leaving to his children in his will. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's going to be buried with 6,000 uh, remaining DB-19s. And his family will be resentful. This is what he left us. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, all right. Well, uh, looks like 4AM is back in the news again. Uh, talk to us about this one, Mike. Yep. So uh, 4AM, is, is uh, we've talked about many times on this program, has uh, been busy cracking and cracking and cracking and posting his work all over the um, the Internet Archive. You can go over to the Internet Archive, to the archive.org, and there's uh, his, his collection. Their collection is uh, available to to look at. And one, the great thing about it is that in in addition to just posting clean cracks, uh, the software itself, there's also step-by-step -step instructions on how these cracks were achieved, which is always a great learning experience if you're into that sort of thing. Well, it turns out that uh, in the Broderbund game uh, Gumball, which I remember hearing about, I don't think I ever played it. Did either of you play Gumball? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, it was a favorite of mine. I loved it. Okay. Well, I, I think you're one of the few, the few the proud, I guess. <laughs> the um, but there was an Easter egg uh, buried deep within the um, 
in the code there. And 4AM discovered it and posted it on Twitter. And within uh, a few hours, uh, he was congratulated by the original author, Robert A. Cook. How <laughs> cool is that? Yeah, very cool. Yeah, only in the modern social media universe would such a thing happen, I think. Yep. I think we need to have both of them on and interview them. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, and you know, if you have not yet been exposed to 4AM's crack reports uh, or, you know, seen what he's been up to, this is the perfect time to, to go dive into that rabbit hole because this is, I think, the the peak of, of uh, what him and, and partner in crime Cucumba uh, have been doing. Uh, it's it's really an astonishing crack. Uh, I mean, reading through this thing, I feel like there must have been more copy protection code on that disc than actual game code because there's just layer after layer after layer of obfuscation and encryption. And I think they said seven different read-write track sector routines <laughs> and, you know, using whole blocks of code for, uh, you know, for encryption keys and running code on the stack, running code in the text page, in the graphics page, uh, running code from the input buffer, like just every trick that you've ever heard anywhere is just piled on in, in this in layers. Uh, you know, running code off by one byte to fool disassemblers, you know, every trick in the book. Um, lots of self-modifying code, uh, lots of uh, checksumming and XORing of things. And uh, it took them, It's you know, it, it it took them quite a while to unravel all this. For, uh, and uh, this is really kind of, it's kind of a unique write-up because they also include uh, a long section of their chat log uh, as they were, uh, you know, 4AM and Cucumber were sort of working less together and they were working back and forth on this uh, to un undo all these layers. And uh, so it's, it's really kind of cool to see the process. And, um, you know, this is uh, for anyone who isn't familiar with kind of with the general project here, you know, they're preserving all this software in a, in a clean form, which means no crack screen. Uh, you know, lots of these games were cracked before back in the day, but, uh, you know, they always have some obnoxious crack screen on them. And frequently, you know, to unravel all this uh, copy protection, you end up, they end up modifying the disk significantly because you can't keep it in the original form and still be copyable. So they end up taking chunks out of the game uh, to make that easier for them to do. So, uh, there was a couple of major cracks of Gumball out there at the time. One was just the game, um, and I think missing some of the levels. And then another one was the game and like one of the cutscenes. Uh, but the full game has this big animated intro and multiple cutscenes and all this other stuff that, uh, you know, that was cut out of the cracks for, for ease of, of use. So. And, you know, it's that's all being preserved now. And uh, they're also, of course, cracking a lot of educational software and business software that didn't tend to get cracked back at the time. So that's all being preserved. And uh, it's it's yeah, it's wonderful to see. I mean, I uh, I had one of the crappier cracks of Gumball in my collection. So I had no idea there was these amazing little cutscenes in it that I had no idea were there. This amazing animated intro I had no idea was there. Uh, they, uh, you know, 4AM got me to test out uh, the uh, the. Uh, 2C plus version of it that they make. So the other thing they're doing is they're making a lot of these games Protoss loadable. Uh, so they have a version of it that loads from in Protoss on a three and a half inch floppy. So I tried that out on my 2C plus and that was worked perfectly. And I lost most of a Saturday to playing gumball. Uh, thanks a lot for that. <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah, this is, um, this is definitely the, if you read, if you only read one crack write up this year, uh, this is, this is the one to read. And, you know, I can't promise that you will follow all of it. I certainly didn't, uh, but it's fun to see the process anyway. And it gives you, I think, uh, new respect for the cat and mouse game that was going on between the crackers and the copy protectors at the time. 
All that for Gumball. <laughs> it's a good it's it's a good game actually. It's really fun. It's the kind of game that nowadays would be like a free to play mobile game and you would download it and play it for five minutes, you know, in line for the theater kind of thing. Um, but it's a lot of fun. Uh, it really is. It's uh, a fun kind of contraption on the screen to watch and you're controlling these little gates to drop the gumballs into the right colored bins and stuff. So yeah, there's, it's, it's fun. It's, there's, it's, there's more strategy to it than it seems at first. And uh, so I do actually recommend people uh, give it a shot. Sounds like gumball was actually just an excuse to, to put this other exercise out there in the world on <laughs> how many, how much copy protection can we shove onto one diskette? Yeah, for sure. I uh, will have to get, maybe we can get Robert Cook on the show to talk about that and, yeah. you know, wh- why there was so much copy protection <laughs> in this game. <laughs> yeah, there's more copy protection in this than like big budget games of the time, like the Ultimas or the Origin games like Knights of Legend and Mobius. I mean, this, this little gumball game has, you know, probably three times the copy protection on it that any of those did. So yeah, there must be a story there. Right. Well, we have uh, one more item, I think, and uh, this is for uh, the Ultimate Micro is uh, hard at work. Henry and um, and Anthony, of course, um, hard at work in their labs, and this time they've come up with the uh, the Ramworks Three uh, clone kit. And actually, for this one, Sean, um, I'm going to defer to you. What do you know about this? Well, they took the Ramworks Three design and they modernized it, uh, reduced the chip count significantly on it to make it a a little less expensive and a little easier for them to program. Basically, uh, uh, uses a lot less power, but it's now a four meg card. Wow. Okay. And it uh, looks like they're going to be doing something at uh, Kansas Fest. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, they're they're uh, going to have a uh, during the Solder Fest session. You, you can pre-order a card or one of their power supply units. Uh, then they'll uh, deliver it to Kansas Fest, where you and under their uh, their watchful eye, you get to assemble your own card or power supply. That's very cool. Yeah, it is there. Nice. Yeah, Ultimate Micro is doing some awesome stuff. I'm looking forward to seeing all their new toys at KFest this year. Yeah, we'll have a link to that particular item in the uh, show notes, and it looks like that kit will cost you 99 bucks US. Nice. Very cool. Uh, actually, you know what? Uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to sur- circle back to that uh, gumball story one more oh, yeah. time. Sure. We actually uh, left out one of the uh, interesting elements of it, which is that as part of the cracking process, they found an Easter egg in the game. Oh, that's uh, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, uh, <laughs> in fact, the title of the article is 33 Years to Find an Easter Egg. Uh, it turns out there there was a hidden uh, screen in, in they found in the crack, and they were able to reverse engineer how to, how to activate that screen in the game. And there's a message from the author uh, explaining uh, not only uh, that they the Easter egg in the game itself, but uh, it's the start of a series of Easter eggs that spans multiple games. So the message from the author that you find uh, in Gumball uh, instructs you to type the phrase Zodware into some other game. And <laughs> that's all it says. So uh, the Twitterverse is now a flutter uh, trying to figure this out. And the latest rumor I heard is that it might actually be an Atari 800 game that has this other uh, phrase in it. People are people have scoured the credits uh, in Gumball, the staff of Broderbund, uh, looking for you know clues to who this Zodware might refer to or what game you know it might be referring to. Uh, so there appears to be a, a chain of at least two. Uh, there's at least two links in this chain of uh, Easter eggs that span games, and I you know I don't think I've heard of such a thing. Except maybe, you know, there's running gag Easter eggs in like the Ultimas and things like that. But this might be the first I've heard of where that like a genuine 
hidden kind of scavenger hunt that spans multiple titles, possibly even on multiple platforms, which is really astonishing. So if, if, if that turns out to be the case. Uh, so we, uh, we'll keep you posted on this, but uh, this is definitely a, a story to follow uh, online. Uh, see if someone can figure out what Zodware refers to. Um, Paul, uh, Paul Hagstrom tweeted the other day, actually, I thought it was funny. Uh, the phrase Zodware uh, now has results on Google, which it, def- it definitely did not before. <laughs> so that's uh, Z-Z-O-D-W-A-R-E, uh, all caps, of course. So uh, that yeah, that phrase now has Google results, which it definitely did not before, which is pretty amusing. Uh, so yeah, carry on, uh, Cucumba and 4AM with your good works. That's pretty amazing. I've heard of um, like messages that that uh, software developers have put in uh, on those disks, like taunting pirates and things like that, but never mm-hmm. anything this elaborate or complex. Yeah, I think Easter eggs probably got their start uh, in the early days of uh, like the Atari 2600 games when, uh, you know, the engineers weren't given, weren't allowed to take credit for their games uh, because they were afraid of other companies hiring them, hiring them away. So they were required to be anonymous and the engineers would revolt by hiding their name in the game somewhere. I think that's probably how it started. And then it kind of evolved into actual, uh, sometimes there'd be rants about management or sometimes there'd be hidden mini games or other things. Um, so yeah. And, uh, this might be, uh, one of the high points of, of Easter eggs as a tradition, I think. Hmm. Okay. All right. Well, I think uh, that wraps it up for the news, Mike, unless you've got any other hidden items for me. Nope. Sean, you got anything for us? Uh, not that I can think of at the moment. All right. Well, let's uh, get a few eBay items uh, this month, so let's roll on into those. Look! Rare! Steve Jobs. Look what we found on eBay. So in keeping with our clone theme for this month, we've got a uh, uh, Mike went a little crazy and uh, apparently <laughs> has has been typing Apple II clone into eBay a lot. Uh, so we got a whole list of really interesting Apple II clones, and uh, it'd be fun to kind of go through them. I guess well, let's get the let's get the elephant out of the room first. Uh, there was another Apple one on eBay. Mm-hmm. Uh, went for sixty thousand. That's what everybody's wondering. Get out your debit cards, everybody. They're coming down in price. <laughs> they are, yeah. That's they definitely seem to have peaked because it wasn't so long ago they were flirting with a million dollars, and now we're now we're at a measly sixty thousand. So uh, that's uh, I don't know about you, but I found that in my couch yesterday. So yep, this one ended up for, uh, after sixty bids selling for sixty thousand three hundred dollars. It was. Um, Described as uh, owned by the original owner and his family for 39 years, presumed to have been purchased in May of 77, which is kind of late. But um, And that was based on a date written on the cassette interface board manual. Looks like all of the boards and manuals and everything and boxes were complete and present. So, um, yeah, definitely cheaper cheaper than those million-dollar units that were selling not so long ago. I think after fees, they're going to feel kind of bummed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I wonder. I'm sure they were, of course, hoping for more, and I do wonder why they listed it on eBay. I mean, that's a big ticket item. I would think you'd go to Christie's or or something. It's been a while since I've seen a, an Apple One on eBay. I think the last mm. time 
was the um, um, there was a um, an Apple employee who who died and it was a broken unit and that one sold even that one sold for more than this. Mm-hmm. It does look like there was um, a modification on the maybe a, a prototype project in the little prototyping area was started and then clipped off because all the wires are still there but they don't connect to anything. It it, uh, it does have both uh, the the sixty five hundred two. And the 6820 chip are the, the original, or I guess they, I don't know if they're all original, but they're definitely the white ceramic ones, which are much harder to find. So, yeah, surprising that it went for as little as it did. Yeah, that is. Uh, personally, I would have gotten out the Paco and desoldered those little chunks of wire. Yeah. <laughs> I just, it would have been very easy to look that, make that area look unused. Uh, I don't know why they didn't bother, but. Uh, Looks like a little white octopus on the ample one. Yeah. Then again, I also would not list a $60,000 item on eBay, so uh, I guess to each their own. All right, well, now that we've uh, beat that dead horse, uh, let's move on to the much more interesting Apple II clones. Uh, And we should mention, actually, if you need any more reasons to come to K-Fest this year, um, one of our K-Fest regulars uh, will be bringing his recently acquired uh, Pravitz, Bulgarian Apple II clone. So that's been talked about uh, quite a bit on the Apple II Enthusiasts Facebook group. And uh, I know uh, myself and many others are very excited to see it. So uh, come on out to see that. If you've ever wondered what uh, Eastern Europe was up to in the 70s and 80s, they were busy cloning Apple II Pluses. Uh, Not only Eastern Europe, but uh, South America. Uh, First one on our list here is a Brazilian 2E clone called the MicroDigital TK3000. Uh, Now, this one to me is kind of one of the... Uh, kind of rank and file, I guess, for lack of a better term, two plus clones. There's a lot of these where it's just sort of, it looks like a two plus with the badge missing, or, you know, it just looks like a two plus in a crappier case. And there's nothing especially special about it, I guess. Uh, is that, uh, is that your take on these, Mike? Uh, yeah, I, I think that, I think that back in the eighties, um, uh, Brazil was one of those areas of the of the world that was having a hard time importing electronics from the United States, and so hobbyists uh, were forced to come up with their own. And usually, what happened was somebody would smuggle one home, uh, a real one home, from a trade show in the United States, and they would uh, reverse engineer it and uh, come up with their own models that were uh, similar in functionality, and they were far enough away from the not so long arm of the United States uh, copyright enforcement or patent enforcement, something like that. And uh, this is what you ended up getting. And I know that this company, MicroDigital, made a number of clones. I think this one is the, they call it the TK3002E. It's an Apple IIe clone. But I know they made a 2 Plus and, and a few other items that were very popular in South America. Yeah, the 2E clones are a little more rare because there is a little bit more reverse engineering required. You know, a 2 Plus, you can literally, you could literally buy off the shelf parts from, you know, fries and build one at the time but uh uh yeah this the 2e was a little tougher that's that is interesting and a lot of them like this brazilian one are so blatant that it looks pretty clear like they just in fact used the case of a two plus for their own molds you know they probably had tooling made from 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 a case that they smuggled out of the country because uh, it looks exactly like a two plus except the badge is missing uh, there's even the little recess where the badge should be they didn't even bother to put their own badge in there like some of the clones do so um yeah but other than that uh, it's pretty uh, pretty bland uh, the next one is one that I think a lot of us have heard of uh, because the name is uh, so on the nose. Uh, it's the pineapple, Apple II clone. One of my, a lot of them have fruit puns. Uh, that's a, a popular theme for shocking. Apple II. Yeah, shockingly <laughs> for, for Apple II clones. But uh, this one was, was probably the cleverest of them. Uh, this is kind of the other category of two plus clones where they 
tried to make the case look different and hopefully interesting in its own way, but also clearly it's a little bit lower budget uh, than the Apple II case is, so something a little bit easier to make. Um, but uh, this is a nice example of a pineapple, uh, so worth looking at. Sean, uh, I know that you have a lot of um, unusual and one-of-a-kind items and even a few clones. Have you seen a pineapple before? Yes, I've had a couple of them in the past. I don't have one right now, but I do have a TK3000. Okay, okay. Oh, cool. So I'm, I'm looking at the pictures that they have in the listing here, and even the pineapple font is sort of similar to that modern Tectura font that Apple used before mm -hmm. Macintosh and the later mm -hmm. 2Es. And the pineapple itself is, I think that's even like the six colors sort of like spread across a pineapple instead of an <laughs> apple. <laughs> yeah. So, and there's uh, some shots of it with the, the lid off and the board looks identical to uh, like one of those Apple 2E maintenance boards that they would swap out if your board went bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think Pineapple was one of the cloners that actually did get shut down uh, by Apple, um, and I wonder if this is why. I mean, they were definitely not shy about what they were doing, and, you know, they it was almost like they were making fun of Apple <laughs> in their clone, like stealing the, everything, stealing the color scheme, and yeah, the board layout is identical, like they were, yeah, they were not trying to hide what they were doing at all. Uh, <laughs> we dare you to come get us Apple, and they did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so this the next one uh, is just listed in our notes as unknown clone, which uh, I think is fair because I looked at this, looked and looked and looked at this listing and could not figure out what this thing is. Uh, it looks like one of the Brazilian clones or one of the other sort of generic ones where the case is cloned uh, one for one, but there are no markings of any sort that I can find on this thing that identify it. Uh, were you able to deduce what this is, Mike? Which one are you looking at, Quinn? Uh, it's just labeled unknown clone, uh, Apple II clone with expansion cards. I had the Korean one up. Um, oh yeah, look at that. Um, yeah, this is a, it's, I'm pretty sure that's just an Apple II case where they, the, a two plus case where they pried the, the label off. The little, um, the little pop up light, you know, in the lower case is sort of the raised one, but it's, it's a different cover for the light. Mm, yeah. So, um, yeah, there's, there's no, I can't find any sort of manufacturing information on this thing. It even has like, uh, a generic 128k RAM card, but there's no manufacturing information on that. Um, yeah, <laughs> you know it does have does have a grappler too, but other than that, um, I, I can't really find anything about this at all. Um, the, this one is currently for sale still. It's up to a buy it now price of two hundred and nineteen dollars. I'd almost, if I had the money, I'd almost put it down just to see what this thing is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it says 128K, but it's it's not a 2E, so that's deceptive there a little bit. Um, it does have a 128K card in it, but uh, yeah, it's 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 a strange one. This this thing, I don't know, it's a mystery. I'd like to at least know what country it's from. That that might be uh, illuminating. <laughs> uh, all right, well, so moving uh, to the other side of the pond now to Korea. Uh, we've got one from uh, from that side of things. What uh, What's this one about, Mike? So this one's called the Alpha 2 Dong, by, made by Dong Kailing Computer. Is that one, Sean? Have you heard of the Alpha 2 from Korea? Uh, it's probably a MyCom or similar clone. Uh, the one you were just talking about with the 128K, that's a mm. version of the MyCom. Okay. Oh, okay. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So they're cloning each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, there, there was a pretty, uh, there was a kind of an arms race between Korea uh, and uh, Taiwan and and parts of China that they were producing these Apple II boards and they were shipping them through Canada. Oh, interesting, interesting. 
So yeah, so this one, um, this one's kind of it's kind of dirty. Um, looks like it hasn't led the easiest life, but they do have some nice shots of the motherboard with the um, with the um, cover off. And but that's sort of where the similarities, at least visually, end. Uh, you know, there's a, a few more slots in this. I think no, they're not. Um, it's labeled Dolphin Two on the motherboard, and this, there's a CG ROM in a weird place. Um, also the, the, the writing, the, the silkscreen writing on the motherboard is actually sort of upside down. So the bottom of the letters are facing the slots hmm. rather than the front of the keys. Interesting. This one's currently listed for $500 by it now. Is it from the computer museum? Actually, this is, uh, the username is CCDAI1. It's got 329, um, feedbacks all positive. So... Yeah, does there is there any indication that it does any attempt at Korean characters, or is it just a regular keyboard? Uh, it looks like a regular photos? English keyboard. I don't I don't yeah. see anything on there that would indicate that this is not a completely English machine. They've got some screenshots of the thing running, and and the feedback, the input is in English, and the syntax error messages are in English. So okay. it boots up with an Apple II sign or Apple II logo at the top. Oh, is that right? It says Apple II at the top. Yep. Huh. Wow, that's blatant. So they just ripped the ROM and dumped it directly. That's, yeah, it looks like it. <laughs> that's interesting. Wow. Okay, that's pretty bold as well uh, to, 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 to not even bother changing five characters in the ROM. Uh, yeah, there seems to be certain countries where the, the two clones really took hold and made an impact in the culture. Um, yeah, and Korea is definitely one of them, you know, as evidenced by the recent work of Ian Kim uh, over there making some pretty cool new hardware boards that we've talked about a lot on the show. And, of course, the other big one uh, is Bulgaria. There were a lot of Bulgarian clones, by all accounts. Uh, the big one seems to be the Pravitz. So we have a couple of those listed here as well, which we'll link to in the show notes. Um, anything special about these, Mike, that you want to talk about? Well, we'll start with uh, the first one. I've seen a few Pravitzes. I don't think I've seen one with a case design like this. It looks almost more like um, one of the old-style typewriters or um, sort of bred with the TRS-80. Um it's, this one's uh, called the, the Provitz 82. It's an Apple II Plus clone. Um, and internally, you know, it, it does have like the, <laughs> it has the light green slots, but um, the layout, board layout looks pretty similar to that of an Apple II Plus. Yeah, the Provitzes look like they tried to come up with a bit of their own case style so to make them look different, but still have room physically for the same sets of cards. So it's got kind of a flatter keyboard, but kind of a boxy rear section. So they still have the same volume for the card slots. So uh, yeah, interesting machines. Looking forward to seeing uh, seeing one in KFest. Uh, next, we've got another unknown clone. Um, this one looks like it, it's a 2-plus clone, but it, it looks like uh, more like a 2E Platinum case. Imagine if a 2E Platinum had been backed over by a truck and then left in the garden for a couple of years. <laughs> it might look like this. Uh, wow. It's sort of, a, sort of a sad copy of a 2E Platinum case uh, in the sense that it's got a numeric keypad and uh, it's uh, kind of that style. But um uh, yeah, it's, I don't know. I don't know anything about this one either. It looks like, does it have a CPM card or it runs CPM according to the listing? Do you know what's going on there? Uh, looks, it looks like, uh, another TK. Um, I don't know if it's the 3000, but, uh, yeah, the, the, it does have the, 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 um, keypad, like, as you mentioned, but the, all the keys look like the Apple two plus style. So mm-hmm. it's sort of a weird melding there. <laughs> yeah. Um, Sean, do you know anything about that particular model of TK from from Brazil? 
I I I, don't, I can't say that I know much about the. I, I know various motherboards were used in that case. That case was uh, a popular aftermarket case that you could buy uh, mm. back in the day. It was advertised in some of the magazines uh, that we all subscribe to. Uh, okay. I, I I've I've got one of them in in storage. Hmm, that's really interesting. Okay, I didn't realize that was an aftermarket case that you could buy. Okay, the motherboard on this one is interesting. It's got a 6502 and a Z80 on it, so uh, apparently it's designed to run CPM as well, although the seller isn't clear on that. The seller just says it should run CPM as well, <laughs> but uh, for, for whatever reason, it does have uh, both CPUs uh, on the motherboard, so it's definitely a, a unique design, this one. Can you can see this, this is from Canada. Mm-hmm. And in Canada, back in the day, you, you could but you could buy all the parts and pieces to build your own Apple II compatible. Mm. What the Canadian authorities would do, and the United States authorities, uh, the the uh, customs officials, you know, for the these Chinese companies that were trying to ship in, or I should say, Taiwanese companies, they were trying to ship in entire systems. They they would get blocked because they were infringing on copyrights. So what they would do is they'd ship in the parts. You could order the parts out of the catalog and then assemble them yourself and have a complete system. Interesting. Okay, very cool. Uh, all right, so this next one uh, I kind of like. Uh, it's an Intertech. Uh, I had not seen one of these before, uh, but it's kind of a nice-looking one. It reminds me of uh, like one of the British 8-bits. It's got that kind of cartoony, friendly color scheme and style to it. Uh, have you ever seen one of these, Sean, an Intertech? No, that one's brand new to me. I haven't seen that one before. Okay, so this is apparently an an Intertech System Four, also with the Z80. Uh, see, I'm looking for there's some sh- there's a kind of a crappy photo of the motherboard here, uh, but uh, yeah, it looks like so. This one looks like a regular Apple II board with a Z80 card in it. So it's not like the old, the other one, which had both CPUs right next to each other on the motherboard, which is really interesting. Uh, so this thing, it looks like a straight-up Apple II clone. Someone's just put a, a CPM card in it. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's kind of a neat-looking machine. Um, it looks like it's not in great condition. The space bar is at a distressing angle. Uh, I suspect that something is broken there. Uh, and uh, it's hard enough to repair keyboards on Apple IIs, never mind obscure clones. Uh, this one appears to be Korean as well. Um, it's got a kind of an awesome 80s logo on it, uh, which... I, which caught my eye. It's got kind of a sci-fi kind of look to it. Uh, but the logos appear to be stickers that are applied uh, crooked. So I guess quality control was not super high on their list of priorities. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I kind of like this one. What do you think, Mike? It's a, an, an interesting design. It sort of looks like a mashup, uh, maybe a little bit TRS-80-ish, a mm-hmm. little bit Apple IIc, a little bit Apple II. They kind of got creative there. Yeah, I like it. Points for uh, Points for creativity, guys. <laughs> yeah, I feel like there's a little bit of BBC Micro in there, maybe. Yep. It's got uh, two Franklin cards in it. <laughs> Very interesting stuff. And All right, so let's see. What's the next? Oh, yeah, the next one here I think is really interesting. This is the, uh, the Tano AVT2. So I'm not sure where this one is from, but uh, the immediately striking thing about this one is that it's in a uh, like a rack mount case. <laughs> yeah, that's what I saw the handles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so if you wanted to rack mount a two C, a two, an Apple II clone, it looks like this is designed to do that. Now they have it in a standalone box, but it's clearly a rack mount chassis. 
And in fact, they show it uh, removed at one point in the picture, so you can see. And it's got uh, bays for full height five and a quarter inch drives in the front, and they've got real Apple II drives in it. So that's kind of interesting too. Apparently, you can. It's designed to fit uh, disc twos. I guess the the Shugart chassis was probably a standard, so someone put those drives in there. But uh, yeah, this is this is a very interesting one. Uh, there's they show it booted up, so it shows AVT two at boot up. So they did bother to change those five bytes in this one at least. Uh, and you can tell they replaced the text with AVT two AVT dash two space because <laughs> uh, they're they're uh, the text is off centered and they needed to fill up the same amount of space in the ROM. So you can kind of tell how they did that, which is pretty amusing. Uh, this one, uh, as of this recording, is already at three hundred and fifty bucks. So it, this one may go for some money, uh, but. Uh, yeah, it says power's on, but unable to test further, so who knows. But uh, it does does show it running. There's no keyboard, so I don't know who knows what kind of keyboard this thing would need. Uh, I mean, uh, it, there's, this, there's no indication of what kind of, if it has an external connector for a keyboard or what, so it's just a chassis with some drives in it that boots itself, but that's that's all we got here. Uh, any thoughts on this one, Mike? Uh, no, I, I like the design. Um, it, it seems to take the... The design philosophy from the Franklin Ace 2100, 2200 series where you have sort of that pizza box, a rectangle pizza box with the uh, separate um, – con- it's connected, but it's a standalone keyboard. It's connected by a cord, and then uh, the drives are actually sort of mounted in the chassis itself rather than independent units like you saw with the Apple II. Uh, Sean, have you seen anything like this? I've heard of the Tano, but I've uh, never seen one in person. Uh that's quite the monstrosity. <laughs> it is. If it, if it wasn't, uh, I'd heard of the, the name Tano, and if, if if it didn't have that associated with it, I'd almost say this was like a homebrew that somebody put together. Well, I, I think Tony Diaz might have one of these. I think I've heard him talk about it. I'm amazed at the size of the capacitors and the, the uh, transformer in there. Yeah, it looks like a linear power supply built right into the chassis. So, uh, yeah, there, and it's not enclosed. I'm guessing this might not be uh, entirely FCC compliant. Because, uh, <laughs> yeah, they've not. got big old linear power supply parts just floating in there on the motherboard. Well, when it's in an equipment rack, who cares? <laughs> yeah, that's right. right. <laughs> yeah, and the whole thing is in a metal chassis, so maybe it's fine. But, uh, yeah, they're uh, they're not messing around with that power supply. I, I do kind of wonder if the drives are going to get some, some interference there, the... Power supply is jammed right up against the back of the floppy drives. Wow, which, not a good decision. I yeah, I don't know how how, uh, how good that is, but uh, I'm not an electrical engineer, so who knows? Maybe it's fine. Uh, but uh, yeah, this one actually is for the seller here is Vintage Computer Museum. Uh, Sean, is that uh, some, someone you see a lot selling this kind of stuff? Yeah, uh, that, that seller ID has been uh, trying to purge quite a bit of their collection recently. Mm, okay. Well, I would say recently over the past two years. Okay. All right. Uh, well, the last one on our list is uh, one of the many aforementioned fruit-based uh, clones, the Peach Apple II clone. Uh, this one is kind of interesting, if only for the nameplate, I guess. Uh, it has it says Peach, and it's kind of adorable. Um, unfortunately, the nameplate, uh, nameplate on this particular example is broken, so it just kind of says P. Uh, I guess they're assuming it, uh, it stands for Peach, or maybe they know. Uh, but uh, yeah, otherwise this one's fairly nondescript as far as I can tell. It's just another clone, one-to-one clone of the Apple II Plus case uh, with the motherboard in it, uh, and someone slapped the name Peach on it. And do you know anything more about this one, Mike? I don't, other than that it's 
you know, just uh, another one of those clones that was out there before Apple II really started, before Apple really started clamping down on um, on the ripoffs, especially the ones that just would uh, suck down the ROM and then put it in a new box with their own own label on it. Yeah, it's interesting how many of them uh, try to have a, the, a same length of name as well, so that they don't, so they can fit it into the you know the eight characters for Apple Space Two uh, that they have to show on the on the boot up screen in the ROM. Uh, yeah, is this is this one that you've seen, Sean, the Peach? It looks like just so many other. I mean, so, some of these clones are just so much alike. They just had different names on the badges, and mm-hmm. uh, so I've I've seen versions of this. It, this one is probably one of the more one-to-one copies of, I mean, it's, it looks like it's a copy of a Rev 7. Okay, interesting. Maybe earlier, it's hard to tell. Yeah, I wonder if there was, uh, like you're saying, uh, all these factories in, in Taiwan and so forth are cranking these things out, kind of like today where they, they do with cell phone cores, where, you know, you can go to, on to any, into any street market, you know, in Asia and buy a thousand different cell phones, but they're all the same core. And these factories, these third shifts are just making, cranking out these, uh, these kind of on-chip solutions for, for a cell phone. And then all these uh, resellers are buying them and putting, wrapping them in crappy plastic and reselling them. So I wonder if something similar was going on with all these Apple II clones, because someone had a tooling spooled up to, you know, injection mold these copies of the two plus case. So I'm guessing all of these companies weren't doing that. So maybe somebody was selling them the cases or who knows. Can you make out the date code on the RAM? Because uh, I'm having a hard time seeing that. Mm, no, pictures are not great. It looks like uh, 8247. So that'd be uh, really late in the Apple II production, Apple II Plus production. Yeah, that's true. It's a good point. Yeah, I'm guessing there might have been some delay. I imagine the II Plus was still viable for longer uh, outside the U.S. Uh, than, than it was here. Especially in areas like uh, South America and Bulgaria where they had trouble importing that stuff. Uh, all right. Well, I think that about wraps up our Apple II clone eBay segment. Uh, yeah, crazy. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of a fun little trip down the uh, a weird rabbit hole. Uh, we've got a couple more traditional items uh, to talk about. One is the uh, Personal Software Incorporated version of Zork, which uh, is the really rare one. So this is kind of the uh, Apple one of Zorks. Uh, so you don't see this one come up very often? No, this is um, um, because Zork was based on Adventure, I think, um, which went all the way back to the PDP. Uh, there were any number of clones and things like that before um, and modifications before Infocom picked it up. And one of them was a uh, personal software. Now, I'm not as familiar with the detail of uh, info, info, details of Infocom's early days. Do, do Sean, do you know anything about that interaction with personal software? No. Okay. If you're interested in, in early boxed software that you're not going to see that often, um, this was available. Uh, looks like it was initially listed for $1,100, didn't sell, was relisted a couple of times. And is it still available? Let's see. Yep, still available for $1,100. So the, the relisting continues, but it's not coming down in price. Or buy it now for $1,500. <laughs> I guess if you're a really diehard Infocom collector, you might want that one. But uh, there are certainly, I mean, later copies of Zork under the Infocom uh, label are, of course, much, much cheaper than that uh, and certainly obtainable. But uh, it's an interesting artifact, that thing. Yep. Not as interesting as our next item. <laughs> yeah, this one. Gosh, where'd you find this one, Mike? Um, <laughs> this is an odd one. So this is the Exatron String Floppy. And... You'll have to help me out here. I think I've deduced from these pictures and the description that it was a tape loop storage system. Is that correct? 
that's what I gathered. Um, I, there's, there's not a lot of detail given in the, in the description to, to help out in the pictures. Um, I, I don't know. I look at this and it almost looks like some, you know, those custom cases they built today for the SD interfaces that go into Apple mm-hmm. twos, but, but this is certainly not that. Sean, have you ever seen this? Yeah. I, back in the day, I, I saw them advertised and, uh, they really just didn't go anywhere. They were, they were supposed to be faster than disk drives and cheaper than hard drives. But it just wasn't a standard that caught on. Yeah, this is, I assume, the same technology uh, as the Sinclair QR used. I believe it was the Q, QR, is that right? The, um, the sort of higher-end biz, business model that they tried. And yeah, it had these, these things, I think they called them micro drives or something. And it was a continuous loop tape inside a little plastic thing. And uh, they got a lot of storage on them, and they were compact, but certainly not fast, as you can imagine. Uh, at least the idea being it didn't have to rewind. It could just continuously run the tape in any direction because it's a loop. But uh, uh, So the, the mechanics of them are pretty interesting. If, uh, if you Google this, you can find a picture of the inside of one of these Sinclair um, loop drive or tape loop devices. Pretty interesting how they work, but um, yeah, definitely a weird kind of idea that... Uh, maybe might have had a niche, but um, my understanding is the Sinclair ones are, were quite unreliable, much like cassette tapes were. Uh, so the advantages of the loop weren't really sufficient to offset the negatives of, uh, of a tape. But uh, interesting that someone tried to make this for an Apple II. What's nice about this uh, particular uh, item is that you see a lot on eBay, um, a lot of rare Apple II and especially Apple III items. See how I worked Apple III in there? Don't you like that? Mm-hmm. Oh, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you see, you'll see an item, but the serial, but the, the interface card is missing or the cable mm-hmm. is broken or there's a burn chip or the software that you need to make it work is not there. And, and this thing is complete in the box. Uh, the manual's there. The manual's dated November 1980. Uh, so everything you need to make it run is there. It is a bit pricey. It's $750. Buy it now. But if you're, if you're looking for those one-off or uh, items that, you know, you just don't see much anymore, I don't know, that might be reasonable for, for a complete boxed copy. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, if you're a collector of these obscure peripherals, I mean, this is the one to buy. It's, uh, yeah, all the original packing foam, everything. It's complete, 100%. So uh, this is a fantastic example. The plastic on the device looks a little bit yellowed, but uh, you know, not in decent shape, all things considered. And there's a bunch of tapes included. It looks like there's some tapes in the original shrink wrap even. So if you wanted to fire this thing up, you still could. Oh, they're uh, called so. wafers. <laughs> oh, yeah, wafers, yeah. Which is funny because they're transparent and you can actually see the tape inside them. So whatever they try, they, and they call it the stringy floppy and they're called wafers. But yeah, it's clearly a tape loop. <laughs> you yes. can see right through their own transparent plastic case. I concerned the tape had uh, kind of melted together. After yeah, time. that's a good point. Yeah, the tape's probably degraded somewhat, and maybe you know, much like old floppies, tapes even more so because they're flexible. Uh, the the uh, ferrite tends to kind of flake off the surface when they get old. So mm, yeah, good point. Yeah, I would. Yeah, it's it's debatable whether this thing still works or not. But um, and good luck finding new stringy floppy wafers. <laughs> <laughs> If you want to, I guess this thing, you know, back in the day would have been useful for backups, I guess, probably like uh, you would use like an eight millimeter, you know, DAT drive or something. But uh, it's much beyond that. I don't know. It's a curiosity for sure. All right. Well, that's the last of our eBay, which is good because we don't actually talk about eBay on this show. That's right. And (laughs) I've got some uh, feedback. So why don't we roll on into that? You've listened to us talk. 
Now it's time to tell us what you think. Alright, so uh, I guess in our uh, increasingly embarrassing uh, corrections <laughs> segment, uh, we have to talk about the fact that uh, last time we mentioned Kaboom uh, several times in the context of the quadraphonic sound card, the uh, uh, Forsonic and the four-play multi multiplayer joystick card for the GS, uh, both of which are now supported by Kaboom. I think we said probably on more than one occasion <laughs> that Kaboom is by Antoine Vigneault. For some reason, we credit everything on that ever done on the GS to Antoine, and while he's a awesome individual. He did not, in fact, do everything for the 2GS. Uh, so yes, Kaboom was by Ninja Force and uh, our apologies uh, now and for the future when we continue to make that mistake. Uh, wah, wah. Yes. Once again, uh, if it makes you feel any better, our research department has been round up and shot. Uh, in fact, the other day, I went down there, Mike. I don't know. Did you know this? I went down there the other day and it's just it was just a bunch of chimpanzees and they were all smoke, smoking weed. So I... Yeah, who's hiring these people? I don't understand how this is happening. See, the monkeys can smoke weed out here. It's legal. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, they, they probably shouldn't, but they can. So there, right. there's that. Apologies to everyone involved for once again, uh, seemingly not knowing what we're doing. Uh, if it seems like we don't know what we're doing, it's because we, in fact, don't know what we're doing. That's right. We are clowns with microphones. All right. Uh, if you ever needed proof that the barrier to entry for podcasting is very low, uh, here's here's your proof. Here it folks. is. <laughs> the Open Apple Podcast. Uh, all right. So we've fallen on our swords sufficiently there, I think. Uh, moving right along. Uh, Antoine actually did also write in to tell us uh, about the new arcade game for the Apple II called Genius from uh, Daniel Liverani in Italy. Uh, so he's getting ready to release that. So we will Ooh. link to that in the show notes. Looks like a cool new title. I think we talked about that a while back, didn't we, Mike? Sounds familiar. Yep. Yeah. I think when it was in early demo mode, he had posted it on uh, the Enthusiasts Facebook group. So I think we mentioned that. But uh, yeah, it looks like it's uh, uh, released now. So we will definitely uh, dig into that. Cool. And uh, let's see, we also mentioned uh, Nox Archaist, I believe, on the last show or the one before. And uh, it's a new Apple II RPG that's on its way. And it's got a very classic uh, kind of Apple early Ultima look, which would look great on one of those 2 Plus clones. And it uh, looks like they're doing some really cool technical stuff with the engine. And uh, so he uh, is encouraging uh, people to go and ask them questions about it. Uh, they uh, link, will link to their uh, workshop uh, to their workshop site again. Sixty five hundred two workshop is their company site. They have a press kit even. And uh, interestingly, they are running a graphics contest to build some tile art for them. Um, so I wonder if you could use the uh, Lawless Legends tile editor for that because it manages all the wacky bit shifting and so on. Uh, but in any, in, in any case, uh, they are running that contest now and it wraps up uh, the end of July. So by the time you hear this, you will still be able to, to participate. So we encourage everyone to do that. Go make some... Um, tiles for Nox Archaist. Uh, uh, winners include getting your name uh, as an NPC in the final game, and also getting pre-release physical copies of the game on five and a quarter inch discs and other goodies. So we will link to all the rules and details of that contest in the show notes. We need to have them on the show, I think. Yeah, I think it's time. I think it's time. Uh, all right. Moving right along. Uh, oh, so uh, Michael Mulhern, uh, Australian uh, fan of the show and the man who travels the farthest to Cape Est every year. Uh, he had, he wrote in to tell us a little bit about Forsonic. I had, uh, they of course demonstrated it at WozFest uh, for the first time ever in the public. And WozFest being on the Australian Cape Est of sorts. 
And we had asked uh, sort of rhetorically on the show, uh, how does it work without a slot? Because it can be configured to run slotless. And uh, so Michael cleared that up for us. Uh, it's only picking up power off the slot. So it has uh, the option to just take power from another source with a cable. And it can just kind of float in the case. I guess you'd have to find some way to secure it uh, in that same case. But I guess it attaches to chips and places various things with connectors to draw signals off of the Ensonic and so on. So it doesn't actually need the slot except for power and some sort of physical uh, mounting. Uh, so that's pretty cool. I'm looking forward to seeing that at KFest. I, I think someone will have one there as well. Uh, all right, let's see. The last, uh, second last one maybe I've got here is, uh, oh yeah, okay, just <laughs> more people running in to tell us <laughs> our mistake on Kaboom. So thank, <laughs> thank you all for that. Yes, uh, we, we are morons and uh, we, we acknowledge that. We'll go feel shame. Yes, we have many shames. Uh, Mike, that's all the feedback I have. Do you have any more? Uh, nothing at my end. I think everybody gave up writing uh, to me when I started screaming at them. So, you know, mm. and it wasn't yeah. for corrections or anything. They were just being nice and I, I you know, yelled at them. So now they write to you. <laughs> Fair enough. And uh, yeah, feel free to, you You can all write to both of us uh, at feedback at open-apple.net. And you can also feel free to tweet at us. Mike is at 6502lane, and I am at Quindunky. Uh, those links are on our website as well if you don't uh, if you don't want to know how to spell them or whatever. So feel free to do that, and we will see it. And uh, that that's it for feedback. Um, and I think that might be it for the show. Do you have anything else, Quinn? Uh, that's all I've got. Uh, Sean, any parting shots? Plug, plug, plug. Just hope to see as many of you as we can at Kansas Fest this year. We're going to have a great time. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. I'll sure be there for sure. And, of course, check out uh, all the latest Apple II news as it happens at a2central.com. That's Sean's website. Hey, thanks. Yep. <laughs> and since we're plugging, I'll throw in one last plug because it's our show uh, about my Apple IIc Plus upgraded ROM. If you're interested, <laughs> yes, if you're interested in that, I'm taking pre-orders. Uh, if you've if you've emailed me already, you are on the list, rest assured. But uh, feel free to uh, email or tweet me uh, at the form- aforementioned addresses, and, or on the KFest mailing list, and I will reserve one for you and deliver it for the special, special KFest price of $10. After that, the price is going up. So if you think you might ever need one or want one, now's the time, folks. Can't beat it. That's right. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. And we'll see you all next month. Thanks, Sean. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Subscribe to us in iTunes or visit us at open-apple.net where you can browse our extensive catalogue of past episodes or read our blog. If you like what you've heard today, or even if you didn't, your comments, questions or ideas are always welcome. Send them to feedback at open-apple.net. The Apple II computer is the most widely used computer ever. This Apple IIe computer with monitor, disk drive, and add-on memory card is on sale for $1,195. Buy now and you'll receive a $150 Apple rebate, bringing your cost to just $1,045. Use Apple Credit for payments as low as $50 a month. Buy now and receive a free training seminar and six tutorial diskettes, all at your electronic solutions and computer solution stores. Apple, Apple, Apple.